The phone rang and it rang and it rang again. Upstairs, engrossed in the mire of my master's thesis, wrestling with references and wrangling words into order, I cursed the unanswered ringing thing and then I ran to the kitchen. Hello, I growled, the first word I'd spoken after writing through the night. Hello, said a man. I'd like to speak to Frances Hickey. I believe she knows about dogs. My mother, Frances, being an expert on shizus and a judge at all breed shows all over the world, did indeed know about dogs. She does, I said, but she's not here. Can I help? I was thinking, I also know about dogs. I'm writing a thesis about their early medieval ancestors. Well, he said, I work in the movie business sourcing and handling animals and I need two small dogs for a film that's being shot in Dublin. I turned to look at the floor where, oblivious to the stardust shimmering down the landline, two shizus were stretched out and snoring in the shade. Penny had a thick golden coat and was full of mischief despite having been bred by a Scottish priest. Mishka was pale gold and white, with long black eyelashes and a sweet nature that contradicted her name. She was called after a poodle that my parents had met in Russia, and the name translates as Little Bear. I turned back to the movie man on the phone. What film? I asked. Well, I can't really say, he replied. It's a bit of a secret. I took a deep breath, and in my best what-would-mam-say voice I said, Well... I don't really know if we can lend you our valuable shizus without knowing where they'll be and who'll be looking after them. We would have to come too. Then, assessing my own movie star animal handling credentials, I realised that during that boiling July in Thesis Central, I'd been wearing the same shorts and T-shirt for a week and I hadn't left the house for ten days. After intense questioning, he eventually divulged that the film was Michael Collins. Oh, I said, casting aside all thoughts of my thesis. Isn't Aidan Quinn in that? And Liam Neeson? And Julia Roberts? Where's the set? How soon do you need the dogs? At this, my mother came into the kitchen with an eyebrow raised and an ear cocked, wondering who on earth was at the receiving end of this. I scrawled a synopsis across a shopping list. And then I gasped. Oh God, I just realised, you can't use them in the film. There were no shizus in Ireland until the 1930s. Oh God, said Mum, I can't believe I bred such an idiot. Oh God, said the man on the phone. I can't believe anyone but you and your mother would know that. I thought for a moment. You're probably right, I said, and I suppose it won't be the only historical inaccuracy in the film. At this point, Mam could bear no more. She took the phone and started discussing logistics with our new friend. There followed a flurry of bathing and blow-drying, and the next day Mam set off for Dunleary with Penny and Mishka and their tidy topknots. We didn't know when elastic hair ties were introduced to Ireland, but anyway... My thesis deadline sadly did not permit a day on the DOS, but I gave the pair strict instructions to charm Mr Quinn, and even, if they got a chance, to give him a lick on the nose. Mam waited and watched as the dogs were walked up and down the pier and made sure they had enough water and tummy rubs. She also had to intercept the many custard creams with which they were bribed after the first few takes. In the film... When Michael Collins, Kitty Kiernan and Harry Boland walk along the pier and towards the camera, you can see two people and two dogs go past them in the other direction. There's a fleeting glimpse of our furry heroines. Penny, who's tired but stubborn, trots along with her sulky tail down. But Mishka, who's just too full of biscuits, has given up. And so she's been carried along with only her silky tail visible. In addition to the custard creams, they earn £20 each and Mam bought them a new bed. And as far as we know, no one ever complained about the apparent arrival of Shih Tzu's to Ireland in 1922. 
Summer doesn't always deliver on its promises. There are washed out days, the days when the sun doesn't shine, the low-lying field of grey that replaces the hoped-for blueness of an open sky. There are the cold winds, the deserted beaches, the waves crashing winter onto the shores a month before autumn has even arrived. Living on an island in the Atlantic has its drawbacks, but it brings, too, the occasional unexpected blessings. Angela and myself were on Ackill Island, and the morning had dawned blue and bright. We set off walking early for the deserted village at Schlieve Moor. The mountain road rose gradually before us, and the remnants of the abandoned houses gradually formed shapes in the morning air, their greyness appearing like glimmers against the mountainside. Schlievemoor was a bully settlement, a collection of houses where the herders lived during the summer, allowing their cattle to roam the mountain pastures before moving them to less unforgiving grasslands for the winter months. There are more than 80 deserted stone houses on the mile-long road that cuts across the side of the mountain. The houses are roofless, doorless, windowless, carpeted with the soft grasses of summer. We had just reached the first of those houses when we were stopped in our tracks. From somewhere in the valley below came the faint sound of a solitary tin whistle. The tune was soft and slow, and it lifted like a skylark over the valley, and seemed to nestle on the mountainside. We stood in the empty doorway of the cottage and listened, the music emerging and disappearing, and then materialising again between the walls of the derelict house. There was nothing ethereal about the sound. It was simply the celebration of life and living in the notes of a traditional tune, played for pleasure in someone's garden far below us. And then I noticed the foxgloves. In doorway after doorway of these deserted houses, someone had laid foxgloves on the remnants of the stony thresholds. On each threshold there were three foxgloves, They may have been placed there by a child who was bored with the trek through this ancient landscape. But the symmetry seemed too precise, the task too onerous for a child. Surely, I thought, after the first or second house, patience would have worn thin and another game would have been found. This seemed instead to be the work of someone who had taken the time and care to remember and to honour. And then another sound caught our ears. A sound I had not heard in several years. Clear and regular as a bell came the echo of the cuckoo song, singing out across the valley. The music of the whistle stopped, and I imagined the whistle player giving way gracefully to this other travelling musician. And I thought too of the old English folk song, April, come she will when streams are ripe and filled with rain. May, she will stay resting in my arms again. June, she'll change her tune. 
The notes rose and fell and rose and fell across the mountainside. And I visualised the ghosts of the women and the men and the children who had lived in these bully houses, coming to their doorways to stand and glory in the melody of summer. Carried from the continent of Africa, across lands and oceans they never dreamed of seeing. The song was a gift transported from one continent to another, bringing resonances of the Congo forests to the side of Schlievemoor. Like the whistle music before it, the song of the cuckoo finally faded and the ghosts went back to their phantom work and we continued across the mountain and down to the sea. Summer doesn't always deliver on its promises, but sometimes the promise is fulfilled and sometimes the blessings come not singly but in threes. I wish that my cousin, Johnny Ledger, had made a will and spared me all this tedious filling out of forms for the solicitor, now entrusted with dispensing the modest legacy to a band of distant relations, most of whom never even met him. I met Johnny a few times when my mother and I visited his mother, my Aunt Bridgie, in England. Johnny was one rum character. He was devoted to his bulldog, a brawny mass of muscle and flesh and rippling wrinkles, incongruously named Sapphire. As a child, I queried why they kept such a hefty little powerhouse in their small abode. Bridgie said that Sapphire loved Johnny and would give the go-boys who jeered him outside Sainsbury's a run for their money. The girls in Sainsbury's looked out for Johnny tipping him off when the golden delicious apples were on special offer. Johnny was a great mechanic, apparently. Bridgie would proudly declare that the neighbours would bring their old jalopies to no one else for repair, knowing that Johnny wouldn't even stop for a cup of tea until whatever rust bucket he was restoring would cough into hopeful, if temporary, life. His workshop was organised with military precision. Every wrench and screwdriver in the meticulous order he had worked out. Woe betide anyone who'd upset the sequence of the tools. Johnny would recognise at a glance that the organisation he preserved so diligently had been disturbed and they'd be hell to pay. The same tidiness didn't extend to the bathroom, however. Bridgie never complained about the state he left the place. A snowstorm of talcum powder choking particles suspended in the foggy air. Not a cupful of hot water left in the tank and the towels, a sodden ropey tangle on the floor. Not to mention the sparfiga he used to dislodge the grease on his hands. Its stifling smell, acrid as petrol about the place. Johnny needed free rein in the bathroom. 
Bridgie explained, because he was readying himself for his one great passion, attending concerts by the singer Mary Hopkin. He guarded the order of his record collection with the same ferocity applied to the arrangement of tools in the garage. His lovely light baritone carried the nostalgic lyrics of those were the days around the house and brought such evident joy to his mother who'd wished us to silence to attend to his voice. Johnny, she'd say, was shy going and the music gave him a great outlet. Clothes brush in hand, she dust off imaginary specks from his collar, checked that he had money, that he was sure of the bus times, that he knew the stop nearest to the concert hall. She'd watch from the window until he was out of sight, hoping, I'm sure, that the go-boys weren't hanging around the corner now that Sapphire wasn't there to square up to them. She'd fret about the bus journey ahead of him and hope that the driver would remember to let him out at the proper stop. Johnny, she'd say, would follow Mary Hopkin to Dingley Co. When I asked her about the whereabouts of said Dingley Co, Bridgie's voice was wistful as she described how it was a kind of nowhere and everywhere place. I didn't understand the ambiguity but it seemed just the kind of destination Johnny would be heading for. I have no idea what the intervening decades brought for him. I can only hope that his work and his music and his beloved Sapphire and Sapphire's successors provided enough for him in life. I hope too that the girls in Sainsbury's continue to tip him off about the apples he crunched as he worked all hours restoring the jalopies. I hope that the go-boys grew into men with enough cop-on to recognise the heroism of chaps like Johnny. I hope that there were many incidental and small kindnesses shown to him when Bridgie was no longer there to fuss with the clothes brush, to check that he had enough money and the right bus timetable. There was a melancholy inevitability in the news conveyed by the solicitor that Johnny had died in a nursing home intestate, with no known next of kin. Nothing seemed as empty and bleak as the image of that blank space beside his name in the residence list. When I contacted the place, confidentiality decreed that little could be divulged. The nurse was, however, able to tell me that he always left his room for the sing-song in the residence lounge. She couldn't remember if he had a favourite song, but I could remember. I could hear him again, plain as day, humming the lyrics of Those Were the Days as he left for a concert, stroking Sapphire's wrinkly ears and looking back before he turned the corner for Bridgie's wave of encouragement. One hundred years on from his assassination, Michael Collins has been firmly cast in the popular mind as Ireland's tragic heroic heartthrob. 
Collins, according to Frank O'Connor, had one of those queer lightning minds which never halt before a word or decision, while De Valera fidgeted and brooded over every sentence like a hen on an egg. Hardly surprising then that Collins, not Eamon de Valera, was the one to receive the complete Hollywood blockbuster treatment. The craze for Michael Collins had begun even before he, and not Dev, had travelled to London for the treaty talks. He became the first example before Shea or Mao of the 20th century guerrilla celebrity and was the first to clash with the paparazzi. When the plenipotentiaries arrived at 10 Downing Street on October the 11th in 1921, a crowd was waiting and Michael Collins's name was shouted louder than all the rest. In London, he was photosnapped wherever he went. Crowds cheered him, detractors cursed him, women ran up to him on the street and kissed him. Augustus John wanted to paint him. London's high society hostesses vied to entertain him. But it was Hazel Lavery who triumphed. She and her husband, the portrait painter John Lavery, were sympathetic to the Irish cause. They recognised that history was being made and wanted to be part of it. Hazel's soirees were legendary. According to her biographer, Sinead McCool, she entertained only those who excelled. Evelyn Waugh, Somerset Maugham and Cecil Beaton rubbed shoulders with Lord Asquith and Bertrand Russell. Russell described Collins as strikingly good-looking with very fine blue eyes. Churchill was a regular visitor and the Laveries were teaching him to paint. He and Lord Birkenhead of the British delegation often dined in the company of Collins and Arthur Griffith. Socially, Collins got on better with Birkenhead than with some of his Irish fellow delegates. Outside of work, he avoided Robert Barton and Erskine Childers. Childers doggedly refused the Lavery's invitations. He wrote to his wife Molly in early November. I hate the very idea of merrymaking in this city at this time and there is too much of it. The Irish delegation was housed in Hans Place, but Collins insisted on having his own base in nearby Cadogan Gardens. Sean McBride, then a teenage courier for Collins, recalled long sessions of carousing, there were bottles of whisky, and everyone went to help themselves whenever they wanted. A substantial invoice from Harrods in November attests to an enjoyment of chocolates, bonbons and peppermint liqueurs. Cadogan Gardens allowed Collins to indulge his taste for horseplay and practical jokes. He needed little sleep, and at unearthly hours would upscuttle his colleagues' beds and topple them to the floor. So, there were also bills for damage to furniture. It's easy to believe that his favourite book was Peter Pan. Through Hazel, he became firm friends with its creator, J.M. Barry, who admired Collins's boyishness and intelligence. Hazel kept a vast and varied library. After a tough day's negotiation, Collins often escaped there and sat late into the night reading. In a letter dated December 10th, Hazel promised to send him a book about the French Revolution. You will delight in it, she said, and be interested in all the facts. Collins gifted her a Kerry Blue Terrier that she called Mick. In the early months of 1922, 
His letters to his fiancée, Kitty Kiernan, expressed a lot of love and the hope of a typical Irish family life together. All of a sudden I'm called away to London. I wish you were coming with me, he wrote in February. Though an enthusiastic letter writer, Kitty didn't have much interest in politics. So, according to Leona Bryn, she wrote little of the monumental issues arising from the settlement with Britain. As the months passed and his London trips became arduous, he turned to Hazel for support. Newspapers fanned rumours of an affair. In March, a profile of Kitty decked the pages of the British weekly The Sketch, but opposite was a full-page drawing of Collins by Hazel. When the Laveries drove him to Downing Street in May, the newspapers reported that Collins had driven with his sweetheart. In June, anyone visiting the Grosvenor Gallery could view John Lavery's latest portrait of his wife directly beside his portrait of Michael Collins. Kitty resented the linking of herself and Hazel in his affections and in July wrote bitterly, The first and best of you goes to Ireland. I am only a good second. If I was sure you really missed me and had nobody else. Collins replied, And who is the somebody else? In August, the Laveries came to Dublin for the horse show. Collins spent the last night before his trip to Cork in Hazel's company. Together they attended a dinner hosted by the cooperative leader, Sir Horace Plunkett. In his diary, Plunkett lamented the risks that Collins took. I fear he's too careless of his life, he wrote. George Bernard Shaw was also present that night and in the days after her brother's assassination and funeral he wrote to Hanny Collins. Tear up your mourning and hang up your brightest colours in his honour and let us all praise God that he had not to die in a snuffy bed of a trumpery cough weakened by age and saddened by the disappointments that would have attended his work had he lived. Terminal 1, JFK We were supposed to meet between the Estee Lauder kiosk and Michael Kors, but you'd slipped unnoticed into the Hudson News with its chocolates and water for the desperate who might never make it all the way to the farthest coffee bar. My love, there was still too much credit left in our credit card to allow myself to leave America empty-handed so that I've gone looking again for that distinctive alliage sports spray that you adore, searching idly as if it was 1987 and I was a young Irishman with a white plastic folder stuffed with unused Thomas Cook traveller checks from the Bank of Ireland sub-branch at Capoquin. I must empty myself of this feeling of not having spent enough in two weeks of frantic, expensive New York. A small leather travel bag, displayed so lovingly in coach, seems also like a good idea, 
and the young man, impeccably dressed, and with an accent as if he'd been to a private college upstate, invites me to try the softness of leather, the feel between my fingers of hidden stitching so adroitly done. I was thinking thus of perfume and leather handbags when I spied across the mall one of the new-fangled self-service electrical goods machines, so pristine in its brilliantly lit fluorescence. It is not that I was not thinking of you, but I made a beeline to where its several coloured lights were flashing. I bumped into a man who was rushing to make his on-time flight. I almost caused an irate young woman to lose both cups of coffee from a tray as she rushed for a jet blue connection. You would think that I wasn't thinking about anyone else, but my eyes were just locked on a neat digital camera with interchangeable lenses, a steel behind smoky glass. I almost forgot my pin, but didn't I just remember the date of the Battle of Kinsale? Victorious I was until I forgot again where we were supposed to meet or where you're shopping. By now you'd be having trouble with our credit card, sorry to say, but I know you'll enjoy this camera as much as me. The long days of COVID lockdowns got a lot of us online for our personal pet projects. In my case, I decided to research my four grandparents and their families, not really expecting any big surprises. Three of my grandparents were West Cork people, where the endless recounting of connections and bloodlines is an obsession. My fourth grandparent was from Donegal, a gentleman with fewer stories to tell, or so I thought. My Donegal granda had spent his life in the guards and I knew he joined up in 1922. So off I went looking for the record of his registration to see what it might say. After some digging, I found a document on the UCD website called Temporary Register Civic Guard. The yellowing pages from November 1922, handwritten in immaculate script, came up on my laptop screen. And there he was on page 169, Eugene Houghton, Bree, Malinhead, Donegal, aged 25, six feet one inch tall. It was easy to picture our lovely granda as a handsome young man all those years ago. The register also showed if the men signing up already had any military experience, IRA, RIC or Foreign Army. Now I stared, baffled, at the words written in the line for Granda. His military experience column said, IRA Company Captain. So my gentle grandfather had spent the War of Independence roaming the hillsides of Malinhead, playing cat and mouse with the RIC and the British Army. 
How did no one ever say anything? Granny must have known. Had my mother known? Us kids, my siblings and cousins and I, now all in our 50s and 60s, had no idea. Who else knew? How had they kept this quiet all these years? Of course, nothing would do me then but up to Bree in Malinhead to see my Houghton cousins. My last trip up there was as a child in 1967. I went up with Granny and Granda, the precious eldest grandchild being brought up to meet the wider family and see the home place. My cousins with their blonde curls, their hens and their dogs, the kindness and the fun we'd encountered, all of it was still clear in my memory. Over 50 years later, a warm Donegal welcome again awaited me. My cousins loved hearing about my trawl through the greats and the great greats. Unlike my side of the family at the other end of the country, they all knew about Uncle Eugene and his time on the wrong side of the law. Wonderful photographs and mementos were pulled out for inspection. Donegal had always been a strong home rule county and the 1916 rising didn't really take off there. But like in many places, the heavy-handed military crackdown which followed it and the threat of conscription pushed many young men into the Nationalist Volunteers, later renamed the IRA. Grandad and his brothers joined the local flying column in 1919. His father, James Houghton, contributed to Michael Collins' fighting fund and the receipt is still safe in Bree. The Malinhead flying column had orders not to start a full-scale attack in case they got cornered on the Inishowen Peninsula. So they ran a tit-for-tat campaign of harassment, sniping on RIC barracks, ambushing army convoys to grab their weapons, followed by police raids on local houses and arrests. In 1920, Malin and Carndonagh courthouses were burned down by the volunteers, firstly to stop them hearing cases against the arrested men, but also to create a shadow legal system under the new Dáil in Dublin. Did Eugene help burn down the courthouse in Malin? Probably. What else did he do during those turbulent years? We'll never know. A nasty guerrilla war and reprisals went on until a truce with the British was signed in July 1921, followed by the treaty that December, which, as we all know, partitioned Ireland, keeping six northern counties in the United Kingdom. Like most of Donegal when the time came, Eugene opted with a heavy heart to follow Michael Collins and accept the treaty with all its faults, rather than to go on with the war. He told the family to throw his gun into the sea. There was to be no going back to the small farm and the Houghton carpentry business for Eugene. He and a few other Inish Owen IRA men signed up together for the new police force on that day in November 1922. He was posted as far away from home as it was possible to be, McCroom in the heart of West Cork. There he met and married my Cork grandmother. They never agreed about politics, and he never spoke of his IRA days again. <laughs>